welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Christian Schultz, who's a cardiothoracic surgeon at MedStar in Washington, D.C. I brought him on this episode to discuss the Converge IDE trial and the convergent procedure. He was a co-author of the Large Randomized Control Converge IDE trial. So we get into his specific technique of how he performs a convergent, when he performs it in comparison to the totally thoroscopic procedure, and we also get into some of his technical pearls with the Cox Maze 4. So I had a great time doing this episode, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christian Schultz about the Converge IDE trial and the convergent procedure. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Amin Kionkui. Today, I have the pleasure to meet with Dr. Christian Schultz. He's one of the co-authors of the big Converge IDE trial that came out this past November 2020. And we'll get into kind of all the details about what that is. But first, welcome, Dr. Schultz, to the program. Thanks, Armin. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. I want to talk about the Converge IDE trial, but before we do that, can you just tell us a little bit about your AFib practice before Convergent? Yeah, sure. So, you know, interesting, I went into practice about eight and a half years ago, and in, through fellowship, I'd had some experience with TT, I trained at Emory with John Puskis and done some TT, and then, you know, some concomitant open surgical ablation. Hadn't necessarily planned on AFib being a big part of my practice. I, you know, I'm an aortic surgeon. That's kind of bulk of what I do. But then I joined the group at MedStar in Washington, D.C., and they had started a convergent program a couple years before. So it was up and running from the first day I started there. So it's something I kind of jumped into and, you know, I had the benefit of training in the era of thoracoscopic and laparoscopic surgery. So kind of was probably more facile than some of the, uh, my older partners. So it just kind of really took off. And so I've been kind of doing that from day one in my practice convergence. It's certainly built quite a bit significantly since then. It's been interesting because it, it really was, for me, it was an entree into the world of AFib, not only for, for me personally as a practice, but also just kind of from a heart team perspective. And really, I think was the facilitator that allowed me to kind of develop a really good relationship with all my EPs. We have a very busy EP program, probably one of the busiest EP labs in the country, you know, exceptional electrophysiologists. So it was great, you know, that right away we started developing this relationship and then it grew into to other things where... You know, they initially get referred for converge and would have a discussion and say, oh, well, let me, you know, I'm concerned about this. We get an echo, they have mitral valve disease or, oh, you know, this person, I think, you know, has left atrial thrombus. They'd probably be standalone open convert ablation or even, a, you know, thoracoscopic TT for, and we could talk about kind of how I stratify and decide what, what patients get. But yeah, I, I think it's, a, especially for surgeons out there wanting to become an AFib surgeon, it's a great way to start building those relationships. And I think part of what's so compelling about it is that you maintain, you continue to share the patient and, or, you know, the patient still 
remains under the, the watchful eye of the electrophysiologist, which they like. It's kind of navigating those dynamics and allows you to kind of build the AFib program you'd like to over time. Right. So tell me a little bit about that. You were talking about when you're kind of your algorithm for TT versus convergent, because I get asked that question all the time too. And so I'm really curious to see what your response is. Like, what is your algorithm when somebody presents to you with standalone AFib and you're trying to figure out, hey, am I going to do a TT? Am I going to do a convergent? How do you kind of walk through that? Yeah. So that was interesting. That, you know, back when I started, it was in, com- or what was the name of, in contact was the company that had convergent and Atricur had the TT and it was a big conflict, you know, like which, which way do you go? And I was very interested. I wanted to talk to some centers who did both to kind of try to figure out what their algorithm was. And there are certain patients for example, I've had a number of patients who have congenital lack of IVC and or they've they've have you know clotted filters and EP just doesn't feel like they can come up from below, or they have an ASD closure and they just don't feel like it's accessible. So for those patients who don't have an endocardial option, what I'll do is it's a combination. I do I start with a convergent posterior wall ablation, and then on top of that, I do a T. I kind of think it's like the belt and suspenders ablation. But the, the way I view it, the way I think about it is, I, from my perspective, the Achilles heel of the TT is the roof and the floor line. I feel like you know, your PVI is fantastic. It's just the, the cool rail, even the epicense on the roof and the floor. I just feel like that, if anything's going to fail, it's going to be that. So what I, that's kind of what I've moved to. If I'm considering a TT, I'll do this kind of hybrid. I'll do both. Because I think, it's, I think nothing's better for the poster wall than a homogenous ablation. And then on top of that, I'll do a a roof and a floor line because I think it does, it allows you to get higher up on the dome, which as you mentioned yesterday, especially on that right side is is where a lot of the recurrences can occur. But but I think it's it's a belt and suspenders. You're not relying on the lesion. So I guess from my perspective, it's, so backing up, so that it's patients who have no endocardial option, I'll do that. Then there's also the patients who, and again, my practice is evolving, it's very fluid, who are, a lot of it's kind of risk tolerance uh, from the patient and the provider. Some patients come in and they say, I don't care, just, just fix it. Do the just the most effective. And actually, in some of those patients, I'll like, have a patient coming up on Wednesday. He's a truck driver and he's had you know, several blades. He just wants it fixed. On him, I'm going to do a mini thoracotomy, vitro maze, you know, clamped, arrested. He's a young guy. And above all else, he just wants it fixed. But he's okay with that. And he's fine with that kind of el- slightly elevated risk. But then there's other patients who they don't want to go on pump. They don't want their heart clamped. In that case, I'll do this kind of combination, kind of the, the three, like you'd mentioned, the three-hole hybrid ablation, you know, sub-xiphoid convergent with bilateral TTs and a roof and a floor. Gotcha. Do you have cutoff per se, like a left atrial size or duration of AF that you'll think about the three-hole more than just the TT or just the convergent? Do you, do you get into that at all? Or is it more just kind of a general impression of the patient? Yeah, it's more a general impression of the patient. And also discussion with the EP, you know, like, uh, this is, hey, this is what I'm thinking and this is what I want to do. But it's, you know, it's interesting. I haven't, I've been somewhat agnostic on left atrial appendage sides throughout my practice. I think in part because I don't think I can say with 100% certainty whether something's going to work or not. Like I've been surprised on both sides, having patients with very large atria who do well. So, but, you know, even in our data we presented yesterday, there's no question that the larger left atrium is a poor prognostic indicator. But I think it's, it's still worth a shot. Yeah. So why don't we get into the talk that your medical student Neil gave yesterday, which was a great talk. You know, I've been waiting for that abstract for quite a while now. I've been kind of keeping my eyes out for that. So why don't you just dig into that and tell us what you guys presented yesterday at the 58th annual SDS meeting? 
Yeah, sure. So yeah, I was unfortunate the format. I wasn't able to chime in. <laughs> I left the med student all by himself together. He did a fantastic job. Really. Yeah, he did a great job. So the, the question was, when I first started, all we were doing, the Converge consisted of a poster wall ablation. And we did a hundred or so patients like that. But then kind of the, the next generation was poster wall ablation with thoracoscopic clip, the left atrial appendage. And then also with time, we started evolving into also taking the, uh, the ligament of Marshall. So the, the question was, you know, was there, did each of those steps kind of make a difference in the outcome? And so that's what we studied retrospectively. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be the first, it wasn't perfect. The follow-up's not perfect. This is in the early stages of our program before we started sending people home with patches and really being robust in terms of how we follow them up. So it's a combination of patients, how they present to the EP, to the general practitioner or to see me. It's a combination of halter monitors, EKG monitors, it's implantables. It's kind of a hodgepodge mix. But, but what was interesting is on our initial evaluation, when we looked at that, there was a definite stratification. Those who fared the best were the ligamental marshal plus left digital appendage clip plus convergent. Their success rates were in the high 70s. And then it kind of stepped down from there, left digital appendage plus posterior wall ablation. And then further down was the posterior wall ablation alone. So that was the initial kind of very encouraging result. You know, as we dug down deeper, the obvious question I had was, well, we're obviously following these patients. These patients who come in early or from the early experience were just poster wall ablation. They've been followed up for four or five, you know, six, seven, even eight years. Right. So when we further broke it down and stratified them by total time of follow-up, those the statistically significant differences kind of went away. And uh, there were still some difference, but it wasn't statistically significant. But again, it's very small numbers. I mean, patients who have kind of all three, I think the average follow-up was out to about somewhere between, two, you know, almost two years, one to two years. So, but it was also interesting to see there was a, in all groups, there was a, a steady, uh, slow drop-off over time. And I think that we'll also be discussing in the paper. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's definitely something we've seen as well. And I wanted to pick your brain about that. You know, part of our evaluation of, of the TT is how robust, how durable is the left atrial box, right? And we kind of talked about that yesterday. What are your thoughts with the conversion? I mean, how durable do you think that posterior wall ablation is? What are you finding in your long-term follow-up? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's very durable. You know, like I said, I think you've effectively... So actually, there was another paper that we we submitted to the AFib Summit in DC a couple of years ago. And it was, what we looked at was, I started doing epicardial mapping with pentaray catheter. So I would do a pentaray, I would map the posture wall, do the posture wall ablation, and then I'd map it. Again. And then EP would come in the same setting and they would map endocardially. And then we compare. So we compared my posterior ablation map epicardially with their intracardial endocardial map just before they started or touched it up to kind of look at the overlap. From my perspective, it, it kind of proves transmurality to a certain extent. And what we found is there was about a 75, 80% of the lesions, which was, I think, very encouraging with the idea that you know that we are actually delivering energy kind of transmurally, because that's always a, a question. Unfortunately, I don't have kind of long so patients coming back, and that's actually an interesting study for those who you know who fail and come back and get mapped. That would be an interesting study to look at that that endocardial map on their initial surgery and their endocardial map down the road. I don't have that data, but yeah, I mean, my bias is that my suspicion is that it is pretty durable. But yeah, I, that's a good question. That's all I want. 
Yeah, yeah. We just we don't know yet. I guess the other thing I want to talk to you about, not and you didn't present this data yesterday. I don't know if it's something you have, but maybe we can just talk about it. With convergent, like you said, in the original trial, it was just posterior wall debulking, right? But then over time, people have added on management of the left atrial appendage. Do you know of any data or can you comment on what you've seen in your own patient population with respect to, is there a difference in stroke outcomes with patients who only had the posterior wall versus patients who had their left atrial appendage managed? I'm somewhere between 250 and 300 patients. And as far as I know, I've had two strokes in, in all that time with the Converge. One was a patient who'd had, it was a redo, it had a mitral ring before, and I think that was why. Another was this kind of combination of uh, TT posterior wall. So yeah, I, then again, I haven't done the long-term follow-up, but this is, you know, a lot of my follow-up with these patients is in the, in the short term, but it's, a, so I don't, honestly, I don't know, I don't have data on that. You know, the, the surgical literature for left atrial pain, appendage management is very compelling in terms of mortality and stroke, but in the converse space, that's an interesting study we need to do. Yeah. I mean, cause one thing I want to kind of impart to people who are listening or people who are thinking about Converge is, yes, there's the AFib advantage and persistent and longstanding persistent AFib, but I don't want them to be dissuaded or disappointed by your results from yesterday that said, hey, look, if we manage the left atrial appendage, we manage the ligament of Marshall, that, okay, fine, maybe we don't reduce the AFib burden in this population. And I think you said it exactly earlier where, you know, that study wasn't necessarily powered to detect, you know, those small differences that sometimes we see when we manage the left atrial appendage of the ligament of Marshall when it comes to AFib burden. But I would find it hard to not believe that there was some sort of stroke mitigation impact with managing the left atrial appendage. So I'm sure you've seen this too. When you go out and you proctor folks for Converge or convert the convergent procedure, I always hope that they're planning to manage the left atrial appendage too, because I think it's a two for one, right? You're attacking the AFib from a rhythm point of view, but you're also trying to manage the stroke risk from the left atrial appendage. That's an excellent point. I'm glad you brought that up because that, you know, the whole reason to do the left atrial appendage, why the reason I started doing it was not necessarily to add to the ablation. I figured if, if that happened, and there's some literature suggests that it does, you know, in up to 5% of patients or so, then that was a total bonus and great, wonderful. But yeah, exactly. The reason to do it is for stroke risk. And it's been interesting, actually, in my practice, I've been getting a lot more referrals for patients for just pure left atrial appendage management. They're not really a candidate for anything, but they've either failed watchmen or some providers just have concerns about the watchman. You know, they've seen some strokes and other things that they just would prefer the epicardial approach. So, so that, that practice is been growing as well. But yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the whole purpose is to, to minimize stroke risk. So do you want to walk us through how you specifically conduct your convergent procedure? Like which, where do you start? Subxiphoid, left side, how many ports? Can you just walk the audience through so people can walk away with specifics on, on how one of the, the experts does their yeah. procedure? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. So so it's a subxiphoid incision. I usually make the incision. It's about two and two three inches, something like that, just on the xiphoid. I, I typically take the xiphoid and then just get into the pericardium, get behind, and ablate the whole posterior wall. I do typically two and a half or so rows, just start in the upper right and then work my way over. I do go anterior on the left, on the left pulmonary veins, and then connect that to the uh, posterior wall. I think that's important. I think that area, kind of just inferior to the left inferior pulmonary vein is an area, you know, in a lot of MRI studies has a lot of scarring. And I think it's a, a focal area of, of ectopy. So I 
can spend time there. The junction of the left inferior pulmonary vein and the posterior wall. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And one, one more quick, quick question on your posterior wall. How many ablations in general are you doing? And do you move the epicents each time? Do you leave it in place? Do you double burn? Can you talk about those specifics? Yeah, I don't double burn. I typically, I just march along making sure there's overlap on each lesion. And I'll typically do 30, 30 to 40, which largely depends on the size of the atrium. I've done up to 50 and I've done as low as like 20, 22. It really just depends on the size. You know, it was interesting back to that study of kind of epicardial mapping. That was also part of the study is how did that impact my ablation? And what I found is that I think of the, I think 18 or so patients that I did, did this on, I ended up going back and doing further ablation on two of them after epicardial mapping and felt like the generally just an, using an anatomic approach was pretty, pretty good. So yeah, so I'll do one by one, first row, second row, and then kind of a half row. I use the the coronary sinus on the lateral, on the patient's left lateral, you know, stay a good two centimeters medial to that. And then as you come down inferiorly, you lose it. So what I just kind of use as my benchmark as I get more caught at is just kind of once you start to get into that really fatty tissue, you'll start noticing your burns are really not effective. You're losing, you get a lot of impedance spikes and things like that. That's kind of when I know that I've kind of gone far enough. So then I place a drain, close up, and I come to the left side. I use uh, three ports on the left and, you know, kind of in the mid-clavicular or anterior axillary line up top, and kind of inframammary fold in the mid-axillary line, and then two fives in each of those, or a five in each of those, and then a 10-12, kind of in the seventh interspace and the kind of mid, a little more posterior, and then get in, just open the pericardium. I use a harmonic scalpel to open the pericardium. And then I use two kittners to kind of play around with the appendage obviously do an echo, transesophageal echo at the time of the procedure, just to make sure there's no uh, thrombus. And then take the ligament of Marshall with the harmonic scalpel, size the clip, place the clip, and then put place a drain and close. One other thing I'll mention is up until last year, we've been doing all of these, probably about 95% of them were concomitant, which was great initially for the instant feedback, you know, to see kind of what the map looked like and, and all that. But from a logistic perspective, it's just so much better to do it staged. And that's what we've moved to. So now we do them all staged in the OR, which is fantastic. It's so much faster. <laughs> and uh, we can, you know, bang out two or three cases or whatever. And then a month, they go home and the month later, they'll come back for the endocardial portion. I want to pick your brain about this. So some people I know out there are doing the appendage first. So for people who feel facile with bats, they're doing the appendage first. And then they're going to the posterior wall. Can you tell us why you prefer to do the posterior wall first? Or is it something you've kind of just always done? Or Yeah, it's just something you've always done. You know, there are some people who I think infuse a little fluid into the uh, pericardium. It kind of helps pull the pericardium off the heart when you approach it from the left side. There's no real master strategy. To that. That's just the way I've always done it. I will say for the TT coming in from the left side, critically important, just because it allows you to, the transverse sinus allows you almost to fully mobilize that transverse sinus from the left and, and it makes it coming in. I think that was the most treacherous portion of the TT was coming in from that right and the kind of entering, developing that transverse sinus. But when you come all the way from the left, you can basically all get all the way through. It's uh, it just makes it so much easier. Yeah. Absolutely. So we talked about follow-up like implantables, ZOs, EKGs. What is your institutional kind of practice right now? So you've just done a convergent. Someone's gone. They've come back for their second stage. How do you guys tip follow up at MedStar? Yeah, so I've been kind of playing around with this for a couple of years and trying to figure out 
through the EPs, through the, we, you know, we have a large referral network. People, they often come through EP to see me. Now, I don't necessarily know their primary cardiologist. So I was trying to, for a long time, kind of arrange a good follow-up that everyone was on board with. Right. <laughs> what I just figured was I, from now on, I'm just going to start sending patches to everybody. So I try to put one on when I see them pre-op in the office, at least get, you know, a week or so of data. And then they have the procedure, they go home. And then at three months, we send another one out. And then at six months and then a year, and then every year thereafter, up to four years is our plan now. That's something we've kind of recently just decided we have to do. And so that's what we're doing. Okay. So you're doing ZOs. You're not doing loops in folks. No. Typically. Okay. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that there are some EPs who are all totally on board. And I think that's fantastic. I know Makati and Sherman, they do that. I think it's it's great. Yeah. Every now and then you need someone with a pacemaker, which is wonderful. But yeah, I think that's ideal to do a loop. I don't know. What, what are you guys doing? Yeah. So it's mainly Zeos. Same thing. We went back and looked at our data. We just sent an abstract into HRS looking at burden using Zeos. But when we went back and looked at our whole population, most were Zeos, some loops, very few pacemakers, you know, one, two percent just because of the nature of the procedure. But yeah, no, we've talked about it quite a bit too. Like, how do you get the data you really want, which is the loop data? But you know, there's a lot of cost issues with that for the patients and subscribers and who's going to interpret it and things like that. So yeah, we've basically just resorted to Zeos at this point, but we're constantly talking about it. Yeah. I will say not that bad. I mean, I I use Biotel that, you know, it's effectively the same thing, just a different company. I think a large part because they, they were sponsoring the Converge study. So we kind of, and they have, look, trying to merge the Biotel automatic download into the uh, track AF database is something also to be helpful. But yeah, anyway, that's just a side point. We both do quite a bit of research now looking at AF. We have a nurse navigator who helps us with that. Do you guys have a nurse navigator or, or who kind of runs your database there? Yeah. So we have database managers, kind of this, we have, so we have our STS database managers, but then we also, we kind of utilize the EP staff to kind of manage it. But most recently we've moved to kind of in our practice, having in nurse practitioner facilitators and I've, it's been fantastic. So they're, you know, they're with me through the whole patient course. So I'm starting to enlist them in that whole process. It's been a mixture of fellows and giving the fellows responsibility of putting the patches on pre-op and all that other stuff. And so I think we're finally moving to a place where we have a more consistent model of nurse practitioners as facilitators. They do, it's actually, you get the right nurse practitioner who is interested and they love it. I mean, it's kind of elevating their level of practice and getting them engaged in research. So it's, 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 you know, you got to find the right, the right person, but then they can kind of take it over and own it. It's great. Yeah. And that's definitely something we try to impart to people too. I mean, it's great to do it all on your own in your own Excel sheet for maybe the first 50 patients or so. (laughs) But then after that, I mean, you need a dedicated either nurse practitioner or AFib navigator RN who's really passionate about this. We have a great one, Carolyn Peer. She's been doing it for years. A big shout out to Carolyn. But yeah, for programs who want to seriously dive into AFib practice, I think having a dedicated person for the database for kind of that patient hub, that navigation is super important. So with how much you've done with how kind of not just popular, but effective this treatment has become, do you find your other partners sharing in the convergent procedure or are you basically the person at MedStar doing convergent? 
Yeah. So for the longest time, I have been the the guy doing it. We've got a couple of new partners. One in particular is very interested. So I'm going to start kind of integrating him into it as well. It's definitely the point now where it's just, you know, need to add another surgeon in the space. But, and also, you know, the, we have, you know, one kind of very senior surgeon who is kind of doing his thing, but the younger, my kind of my level and younger, they're much more keyed into AFib and kind of the need for treatment. And I got to tell you, I mean, just the biatrial maze, the COX-4 is just fantastic. I mean, I, you know, I can't say enough about that. It is no question the gold standard. I mean, patients who've been in AFib for 20 years and you do it and they're, you, you cure their AFib. It's just fantastic. I mean, I can't plug that and just how truly important it is to do it and do it right. It's just really just a life-changing operation for these patients. Well, since you brought it up, do you want to walk us through how you do your Cox maze? Do you do a Cox maze three with cryo, Cox maze four with RF and cryo? What, what is, do you do it on pump, off pump? Do you want to walk us through your maze surgery? Yeah, sure. So I do, I, I do a Cox maze four with the combination of cryo and RF. I do in contrast to what you know, Nivad said yesterday, I do. I still tend to stratify patients into kind of paroxysmal and the persistent, especially if I'm, you know, if I'm not, I'm doing cabbage, for example, or an AVR. One thing that's interesting is the Encompass clamp. I've I've used that. I think that's great. And so for all the patients, I would typically, you know, a paroxysmal patient getting a cabbage, I've now moved to just doing an Encompass, so a, a full box lesion with left atrial appendage clip. But then for all the persistent patients, I do a full bitral maze on everybody is, you know, a reasonable surgical risk. If it's an 85 year old lady, just put a clip on the appendage and do your index operation. But, but for everyone else, yeah, I, I you know, try to be very aggressive with a full bitral maze. And that's, you know, left atrium, I do RF clamp on the roof and the floor, PVI. So start off PVI, open up the left atrium. So, so sorry, let me back up on pump, do PVI bilaterally, arrest open up the left atrium, do an RF roof and a floor. I do the mitral coronary sinus lesion from below with the cryo and then mark the, the spot, the access, and then come in from above, get that lesion, close up. And then I move to the, the right atrium to take the clamp off. So I'm reperfusing. I do your SCC IVC, the right atrial appendage lesion, and then a, a cryo to the tricuspid. So that, yeah, that's how I do it. PVI off pump. Or on pump, but not arrested. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously arrested for the left atrium. And then you're doing on pump, not arrested for the right side. Yeah. While you're rewarming. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. It's always kind of this relief when you get to do a full Cox Maze 4. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because you know that when you leave the operating room, that patient's not going to be an AFib, you know, and they may have that 40% AFib immediately post-op, but you know, you know, you follow that patient out past the blanking period. That's going to be such a great, robust, durable procedure that it kind of gives you the soft spot. You know, you're just like, yes, I get to do a Cox maze for <laughs> It is. It's funny too, that in talking to referrings, I tell them, I was like, look, I fixed the AFib and some are like, okay, yeah, whatever. You know, like they don't, I think it's just interesting that, you know, from a patient's perspective, they're and I think it's also, you know, I don't get to see them long-term to see the, the, the benefits long-term, but yeah, I mean, I'm just always impressed just how well they do. Just no, you know, no AFib post-operatively. It's just fantastic. You had mentioned the Encompass clamp and then, I'm, you know, then we'll probably you know, shut this episode down, but I do want to get your thoughts on the Encompass. So you've, you've used it in the setting of patients who you otherwise wouldn't perform a left atriotomy on a cabbage patient, an AVR patient. Do you have any kind of anecdotal feedback on how well that left atrial box is doing for their AFib? 
Yeah, I don't have any kind of really robust. I've used it, I think, three times. So I don't have a lot of, kind of robust follow-up data. But I, you know, I will say that after using it and inspecting the, it's a very solid lesion set, it looked to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm eager to see how those patients do over time. Again, the kind of the parasitical. And it's also interesting to think about using it in the context of, you know, full Cox maze. And will I, I think there's questions of, you know, kind of hopefully with there kind of be a, a bundled, you know, if you're going to be using the Encompass plus cryo plus a clamp, I think that using the Encompass for your SVC, IVC, it's a little too bulky. Right. Yeah. I've actually asked Atrick about, you know, can we get some kind of bundle payment <laughs> if we use that? But. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as far as tissue ablation, it seems to, to kind of do the trick. You know, we've used it a, a few times as well, and we've always tested the box and we're able to get bi-directional blocks. So I think for tissue ablation, it's working really well. We'll just see what the kind of the long-term outcomes are with respect to rhythm management. So, yeah. Well, this was absolutely awesome. Do you want to impart us with anything else before we finish up this episode? No, just it, Armin, it's been great to get to know you. And, you know, it is, it is a small community, kind of the true believers, the zealots of AFib, you know? <laughs> but it's just a great, you said, and others have said, fix someone's mitral valve repair, fix someone's mitral valve regurgitation, and you leave them in AFib, you know, they still may be incredibly symptomatic. They may not even know you did anything. Yeah. So just that's, I would just impart, you know, to everyone out there who hears this, just to become an expert in AFib. It's, it's really rewarding. And it's a very kind of interesting side of what we do as cardiac surgeons. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And just for, for the listeners out there, if, if they want to find out more about you, what is your, your Facebook, Twitter handle, email? Oh, man. How do people find uh, Christian Schultz? I need to get, I don't even know what my, I have one. I don't even know. What <laughs> <laughs> but they can email me. At, so they can Google me, you know, Christian Schultz, S-H-U-L-T-S and at MedStar. My email is uh, Schultz, C, so S-H-U-L-T-S-C at gmail.com. Happy to, if anyone has any questions or want to discuss. And we actually, I'm offering, I have a fellowship now. It's a complex aortic, complex aortic structural and AFib, kind of all three combined, which is, I think, a great experience. So people are interested to reach out. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Christian. And for everyone, that was uh, Dr. Christian Schultz. He's the Regional Director of Cardiac Aortic Surgery, Surgical Ablation and Innovation at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Darwin. Good to see you. It's good to see you. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.